Cambridge Minds with Trevor Dan on Cambridge 105. Welcome to episode one of a new monthly series on Cambridge 105. I'm Trevor Dan. Cambridge is full of people thinking great thoughts, not only in our two universities, but on the science park, in galleries, in publishing and media, in laboratories, in businesses of all sorts. And in these programmes, I'm going to meet some of them in their natural habitats and see what's on their Cambridge minds. We'll have two subjects every week. Later in the show, Roger Mosley, who ran the BBC's coverage of London 2012, talks about his new life as Master of Selwyn College. But first, the wonderful and fascinating David Spiegelhalter. Or to give him his full title, Professor Sir David Spiegelhalter, Winton Professor of the Public Understanding of Risk. So what can possibly go wrong? Well, he should know. I went to see him in the university's Centre for Mathematical Studies, hidden away off the Maddingley Road. David, I want to start by just asking you briefly about Norm. There aren't many distinguished academics who have comic strips on their websites. Just tell me something about Norm and what we can learn from him. Norm was an idea that was cooked up between myself and my co-writer Michael Blasland, who's an English literature graduate and journalist, and we were both fascinated by this idea of putting rather dry statistics about risks and so on into a narrative, into a story which can engage people, to be honest, engage people's emotions either by um, making them you know, laugh or by uh, making them you know, feel some sympathy with, with the human condition. And so in Norm, essentially, he invented these three archetypal characters that are are sort of cartoon-like and and express the various different ways in which we can respond to risk and uncertainty in our lives. And uh, this sort of discussion goes on all the time when anyone talks about risk. Uh, There's accusations that some people are really overcautious, very anxious about everything that might happen and, you know, continually wiping everything with the wet wipes and getting worried about every new food additive and radiation, et cetera, et cetera. So that and that's what we personify by this lady, Prudence, who's who's terrified of everything. (laughs) <laughs> and then there's this other attitude, which we might call a sort of reckless attitude. Oh, well, come on, you know, nanny state. I'm not going to be pushed around. I'm just going to do what I feel like. I don't believe any of this nonsense about diet and things. So, and that's, we've got this character, Kelvin, who takes this absolutely gung-ho you might call a rather reckless attitude. And then in the middle, we've got poor old Norm, who's this desperately average person, of course, based on a statistician like myself, who, who's, you know, sitting there being, trying to, you know, actually look at the figures and work out what's important, what he should be worried about and what he shouldn't in a kind of rational way. Now, we know this is doomed, you know, to actually try to be completely cold and rational. And in that way, we, we definitely follow the work of, Psychologists such as Danny Kahneman have pointed out in their book Thinking Fast and Slow about two broad ways of thinking, a cool, cold, calm, slow 
in the quotes rational way when we weigh up risks and uh, a much warmer um, more emotional uh, gut feeling uh, approach where we we just respond you know, according to how we feel about something a threat or, or an opportunity and of course it's not that one is right one's wrong um, we've got part of those in all of us but by trying to show in a way archetypal characters that just personify one or the other you know we hope to give some insights into the struggle we all have with dealing with with risks in our everyday lives you mentioned the word dry in the same sentence as the word statistician i'm wondering where you sit in terms of how important it is that you tell the world at large what you're up to and what you're thinking about and how important it is that you have discourse with your peers within the academic community yeah, I mean, the word passionate, of course, is desperately overused now. And in fact, the the, the, the phrase passionate statistician was first applied to Florence Nightingale, um, bless her. And uh, so, but in fact, that's what I would love to see myself as because, you know, statistics are traditionally seen as a bit grey, a bit dull, and statisticians as being grey and dull, and frankly, some of them are. But actually, then, on the whole, I love them. You know, it's my, they're my peers, my profession. I love statisticians, I love statistics. So I'm kind of turning myself into a performing statistician. Uh, fortunately, I've got this job, um, which has been, my chair's been endowed by a hedge fund, Winton Capital Management, to whom I'm eternally grateful for allowing me just to do what I feel like and not asking questions. And um, I've got this job, it's called Public Understanding of Risk. It was originally going to be called Public Understanding of Statistics, and to be honest, that's what I do. I, I, I feel I'm a, a performing statistician, a public statistician, taking out the messes that, you know, looking at numbers, taking them apart, telling stories with them, but trying at the same time to be you know, uh, cool and analytic about them is really, really important. And, uh, and of course, it's great fun as well. Now, I'm very fortunate that I, I, I've, uh, I've already had an academic career. I've got a zillion letters after my name. I've got all the qualifications. And so I can do this fun stuff um, without, <laughs> well, at some risk to my reputation. But, uh, you know, I'm willing to take that risk. I, it's great to be able to take risks when you get older. I think this is what older age is about being bold and a little bit uh, and risk-taking when we reach a certain age david we get used to being asked the same question when we meet new people in my life it's always or in recent months it's been did you ever meet jimmy savile um <laughs> what when you meet somebody new when you're in you know the wine bar or on yeah, the bus yeah, yeah. and you tell them what you do what do people say well it's an old joke of course you know not really a joke that you know if you mention you're a statistician it's the quickest way to find your way to the bar because everyone just clears a space around you you know as they yawn fall asleep and just generally move away i've always got around that by talking about the applications that i've worked on and uh, and which i do now even so because you know you say you're a statistician everyone yawns if you say god did you hear that news story yesterday about the latest claims about alcohol about food about about unemployment then everyone's yes yeah i thought it was terrible awful you know did you see what the daily mail did with those numbers or whatever and everyone you know wants to talk to you so um and especially because i tend to get involved in slightly more controversial stuff uh, then um you know it's 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 you, you've got to beat people away as a so, whole we do misunderstand and misuse statistics don't we are, are you one of 
Are you in the Tim Harford camp of, of, of just being very suspicious of every use of percentages and statistical information in news bulletins? I'm afraid, yeah, I'm a, a sceptical, grumpy old man now. Um, well, and, and I've, <laughs> I've even got a rule of thumb that the very fact that a statistic is being mentioned in a news bulletin or in, uh, in, in a magazine programme or in a newspaper is a reason to disbelieve it. The very fact that it's there, because in order for some news story to get there with some statistic in it, it's had to go through so many filters. It's got to be new. It's got to be different. It's got to be interesting. All of which almost guarantee that it's wrong, because generally scientific research and statistics and surveys and things only add, you know, a small amount to what we already know. Generally, they don't contradict all the work that's gone before. And if they do, generally they're wrong. But those are the things that get in the news. So, yeah, I'm deeply sceptical and I'm wheeled out again and again to criticise and comment on stuff that's published. Um, I, I've now, since I've been in this job, developed a much, much better regard for the media. Now, you might think, well, that's odd. You know, I spend my time criticising the media. Actually, what I'm doing a lot of the time is criticising the press releases on which the media stories are based. Journalists have a tough job. They've got to turn around these stories very quickly. And to be honest, most of it's based on the press release. And the press release is churned out by the institution or the journal. Scientists sometimes have a role in it, sometimes not. And generally, it tends to exaggerate the findings and often actually distort them. And uh, this has been shown in a recent study in the British Medical Journal, about which there was a press release, of course. Of course. So, so, but we didn't, it didn't get as much coverage as it should have about the dangers of press releases. So um, I, I, I become very sceptical of actually... A lot of my scientific colleagues, uh, the way they, their work is promoted, the way they tend to do some excellent work, but then often in the conclusions or in the abstract and certainly in the press release, the results get exaggerated because everyone likes to see their work reported. It's good for your career. I've always liked I like it as well. I quite like seeing my name in the newspapers or whatever, as long as it's um, vaguely complimentary. So I can see why people do it, but actually it's, you know, there's a lot of, naughty stuff going on so certainly i i would put myself in the tim harford camp I, i'm a huge admirer of that program of more or less on on radio four it's great we got programs like that and there's a great we've got programs like great we've got an audience for programs like that people you know clearly really like them they have loyal listeners they do by the million so um i actually feel part of a, a really encouraging movement in this country and elsewhere but particularly strongly in this country of this you know critical approach to evidence numbers statistics in the news that are being used to try to change our opinion change our behavior there's it's not just more or less and and uh, some of the work i'm doing but others like organizations such as full fact who do fact checking will be working very hard at this election there's things like the um, Statistics Authority, which is an official body, but which writes wonderfully critical letters to ministers criticising them, them for their use of statistics. They just can't get away with it like they used to. I know that a lot of your work these days is not specifically about risk. Risk is only a part of what you do. But if you don't mind, I just want to draw back into that world for a moment and ask you this. What's the difference between risk and chance in other words if you if you are good at analyzing risk does that make you good at predictions of chance i mean can you tell me whether 
Cambridge United will be promoted? Or can you can you at least analyse the statistical chance that they will more cleverly than I can? I, I see no difference at all, really, between risk and chance. It's just the, the English language. Risks tend to be applied to things for which there's a downside, a negative aspect, or there's a risk of this. And chance tends to be applied to things for which there's a good side, or the chance of this happening. They're all the same. It's exactly all we're doing, what we're doing is facing up to the fact that something's going to happen and we don't know what, and it might be in our favour, we might like it, and we might not like it. So that's all we're talking about, which is, of course is the whole of human life. Every day, everything we do is unpredictable. The consequences are unpredictable, and they may be well, great, or they may not be so great. And so it's all the same. So what I've, uh, in thinking about risks and chances... When you're making a prediction of uh, a bad thing happening or a good thing happening, is exactly the same, exactly the same mathematically. We use the same sort of data. We use the same sort of methods to predict the results of football results, you know, which, of course, are the deeply deep use of statistical and analytic methods for that um, are used if, uh, by sports betting agencies and by professional gamblers. And, um, and also whether, or whether we're trying to predict uh, whether someone will get a disease or not, or whether you know what the what the development of an epidemic might be. It's, so does it's this all make sorry to harp uh, on football, David? But could you do the pools more effectively than I can because you know some formulae? Uh, yeah, pools is difficult because predicting draws is unbelievably difficult for everyone. That's why pools are based on draws. But in terms of predicting football results, I've tried it. You know, I I did I I've had some experiences. I was um, and I did quite well on one point. But um, I myself wouldn't now try it. But I do know the sort of methods that are used. The statisticians who develop these methods uh, mysteriously stopped publishing them at some point about 15 years ago and just went into business using them because they were so effective. And, of course, what they're doing is not predicting who's going to win the match. That's a daft thing to do. All they're doing is... Tr- all they're doing... <laughs> the skill is, is just trying to produce good odds. So, and odds that preferably are slightly different from the odds being offered by a bookie or a betting agency or, you know, or whatever, or from a, a, a website. So that you can, if you spot a difference between the odds that you reckon um, are... Um, you've calculated and the odds being offered in a bet, then, of course, you gamble. You put money on, on that, either to win or to lose. Any difference is, is, um, is then worth gambling on. So um, the way you know, any professional gambler now using analytic methods makes money is by spotting differences between calculated odds using mathematical formulae and odds being offered by a betting website. So I think this is great. I'm really excited. I've been offered jobs, my, you know, for working for these people. I would love to do it. But because um, it, it's so fascinating. But the problem with that, then it's all secret. You know, you can't tell anyone your methods. Um, it's just like working for a hedge fund, who are just professional gamblers as well. Um, you know, their methods will be secret because, you know, they're making money out of their formulae. And I'm I'm too much of a show off. I think I just as soon as I do something, I want to talk about it to everybody. Let me ask you this then: If I toss a coin, what's the chance that it'll be heads? Well, it depends on the coin. I've got I, I regularly carry two-headed coins in order to baffle people on this, just to <laughs> irritate them. <laughs> um, but you know, I would say fifty-fifty. Um, what I find interesting to do, is, of course, is to flip a coin, ask people that, and they say, oh, yeah, 50-50. Then, f- then I flip the coin and cover it up. And then I say, what's the chances this is uh, this is heads? And then they go, oh, 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 and they're forced in the end to say 50-50. 
But of course, it's a, by then it's a different sort of uncertainty. It's an uncertainty. The uncertainty then is based on your lack of knowledge. I can look at the coin, not show you. Your odds are still 50-50. I would know the answer. So, and is this what we call Bayesian? Yeah, this, exactly. This is the Bayesian way of thinking about things. Because Bayesian way allows us to put probabilities and chances on not just on future events that we can't know about, but on events that may already have happened, but we don't know about, such as a coin that's been covered up, such as the uh, the sex of the, you know, the um, Duchesses of Cambridge next child. Now, that has been decided. It is either a boy or a girl, we assume, <laughs> but we don't know which. So it's quite a reasonable thing to quote a probability about. Now, it's purely based on ignorance. I think they probably, they probably know. I don't know if they know, but um, I, I certainly don't. So I could bet on that. So from a Bayesian perspective, probabilities of that kind are just as valid as the probabilities before an event happens. I, the other analogy I use is, is um, a lottery. You know, before a lottery, then you can't know the answer. You know, it's, it really is what you might call pure chance, all those balls bouncing around. But if you go into, into a shop and buy a scratch card, it's already decided whether you're going to win or lose. It's just that you don't know the answer. You don't know what's underneath those the little things that you scrape away. So, you know, from a, from a mathematical point of view, a probability point of view, the two situations are identical. But actually, the form of uncertainty is rather different. On this edition of Cambridge Minds, we're talking to David Spiegelhalter, and we'll have more after this. Cambridge Minds with Trevor Dan on Cambridge 105. We're back with David Spiegelhalter. And David, we're in a fantastic building. I don't think people who live in Cambridge would very often have even seen this place. Can you tell me something about it? It's a remarkable looking piece of architecture. It's extraordinary. It is such a privilege to work here. It's the Centre for Mathematical Sciences and it's tucked away off the Maddingley Road and nobody knows it's here. It's not on any main road. You can't see it from anywhere until you suddenly come across it. This strange collection of what they're called pavilions. They've got sort of, you know, things on the top, you know, little um, pods on the top. They look like something out of Doctor Who and these pavilions make up the two mathematics departments and it's this big building just full up with serious mathematics you know 170 staff or something like that massive maths departments one of the top ones you know in the world I think we're ranking fourth or something like that in the world at the moment on some of these silly league table stuff. stuff. And um, it's uh, quite an extraordinary place. It's, it's a beautiful building um, and, it's, uh, and it's full up with people doing maths, blackboards everywhere. The Isaac Newton Institute in the corner, which was built first, that's where Fermat's last theorem was, was announced. That's got blackboards both in the toilets and in the lifts, which <laughs> this building doesn't, but we've blackboards in every room. So uh, people do maths and the whole central core area is full up with people doing maths all the time. Very well soundproof. So people can use the cafe and everyone sits there doing maths. And, and you've got Stephen Hawking here? Stephen Hawking is office at the back here. So we see him sometimes still. That's the sort of theoretical physics end. Uh, I'm in probability and statistics. There's geometry, fluid mechanics, and then all the really pure mathematics. There's people here working on codes with GCHQ. Haven't got a clue what they do, of course, but never mind. They're all unbelievably clever. It's like Disneyland for mathematicians, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. No, Mathland. It is real treat. And there's, you know, lots of seminars for everything and uh, lecture theatres uh, where the postgraduate lectures are, but the undergraduate lectures are in town. That's where I lecture. So here's the thing. You can talk, as you do, 
to uh, civil servants, you can talk to hedge funds, you can talk to betting companies, you're always on the radio and television. Why do you bother teaching students? What's the appeal of a new cohort of undergraduates? It's very exciting. It's, actually, I haven't done it for some time. This year I'm teaching the undergraduate introductory statistics to the second-year mathematicians, a big class, big lecture theatre. I'm really enjoying I'm learning a lot myself. And it's great because I hope, oh dear me, I hope that I'm enthusing some of these brilliant mathematicians, that, you know, the cohort that come through Cambridge are really seriously good. I, what I'm hoping for is some of them will stick to statistics. You know, they'll go to maths, you don't get unemployed mathematicians. You know, people will go into all sorts of areas. But it'd be lovely if some of these people went into statistics. Statistics is the job of the future. It's like such a cliche talk about big data and data analytics and predictive analytics and all these phrases. But it is true. You know, we are going to be confronted, we are confronted at the moment, but even more in the future, with absolutely trough loads of data, just bucket loads, just hose pipe full of the, of the stuff coming at us. And, you know, people can always do something with it. They can boil it down, they can do some plots, they can do all sorts of stuff. But to do it properly, to really understand what you're doing, you need a, a sound theoretical basis for this. And those who I hope are the kind of people that um, we're training up at the moment, people who go in, go or go into this area and be able to, you know, not just do things with data and do some numbers, but actually um, understand what they're doing on the theoretical basis for it at all. And uh, we've just been announced that Cambridge is one of the partners in the, in the new uh, Turing Institute that's going to be built in, um, in, uh, in London. And that's really exciting, again, because that's part of, that's a real sort of academic contribution to what is a deeply practical issue of big data. I'm really interested in this because it does seem to me that as we get more data, we perhaps sometimes have less understanding because more people can use that data to tell us a variety of different things. Is your job more about interpretation and analysis than perhaps it was when you first started? Well, it's always been, statistics has always been about interpretation and analysis. You know, there's a certain amount of data reduction and plotting and graphing, but basically it's trying to understand what can we learn from the data. You know, actually boiling the data down, doing things with it is is data analytics, and that's fine. But then it's so easy to to learn the wrong lesson, particularly when there's lots of data. It, what really annoys me, God, I get so angry, is when some crass idiot media person, of course media person I say, but somebody says, oh, in the future we'll have so much data we won't need to use sort of you know subtle statistical methods. The data will tell us the answer. Absolute nonsense it will. It's complete rubbish. It will obviously do fantastic things. We'll be, you know, the data will be, you know, we'll be able to do some really clever stuff. But if you want a driverless car and who's, who's going to recognize stuff and do things, that is not just a simple operation of using data and, and then it'll tell you how to drive the car. You need models in there. You need some really, you know, um, careful use of statistical inference. And particularly, that's just for a bit of technology. If you're actually going to learn some science, you're going to learn about what, you know, genes are, the gene-environment interactions, when you're screening mass, vast numbers of genes. If you're going to do that kind of work or learn about how the brain works, whatever, you need statistical inferences, not just doing things on data. You're going to have to understand the role of chance, the role of uncertainty, and it's going to be even more difficult because there's more data. Not, it's not going to be easier. So here I am 
in a very tabloid way, heading for the gutter. Um, your latest publication includes the word sex yeah, in the title, yeah, David. Could, yeah, uh, you old scamp. I know. Um, <laughs> what are you on about now? Yeah, I know. It's called Sex by Numbers. And it was, of course, it was my publisher's idea. But actually, it's been great. So it's, it's a serious book. We got a nice comment by Tim Harford on the cover saying, this is very clever because it's a book about statistics disguised as a book about sex. Because it's um, it's about the statistics of sexual behaviour, about you know how can we know about what goes on behind closed doors, or most we hope behind closed doors, um, from asking people or indirectly. We can only ever learn indirectly about these things, and so it's one of the most difficult areas of statistics where the statistics are, can be most unreliable. You only have to think of magazine surveys. Um, for you know, the, the probably the biggest drivel of all are in magazine sex surveys of people who choose to answer an online questionnaire or send or what used to be send back a questionnaire. And people used to, you know, people have still talk using these statistics as if they were worth anything, and it's they're completely nonsensical. So um, it's a lovely area in which um, some statistics are good. And some are really rubbish, and you really have to discriminate between those. And that's what the book is about, about how to try to, you know, obviously it's full up with what I think are some pretty quite interesting stats. <laughs> quite lurid. Well, I oh, goodness me, there's so many um, about, you know, uh, you know, I know, for example, um, 16 to 14, four-year-old people with a with a sexual partner their you know average number of times they've had sex in the last four weeks has dropped over the last 20 years from five to four to, to three that's the median number of times having sex so there's uh, less sexual activity going on in this country than there was 20 years ago but actually it's more varied and i won't go into actually all the details of, of how it has become more varied no it's but it's all in the book no exactly in a family show but however it's all in the book here are you spouting statistics on the media you told me a few minutes ago i should be very skeptical about anybody doing that absolutely where are your where have your figures exactly. come from exactly you should be deeply skeptical about this and and not believe a word of it until i can say i count these i what i call i i in the book i i give a very crude star rating um so four star statistics and ones you can absolutely believe and they would be official statistics you know for example births marriages deaths abortions etc that the ones i was quoting are what i consider three star which ones based on the best possible surveys these are the natsal surveys that have been carried out every 10 years and uh, the latest one is just reported but then you've got two star you know stats which are ones based perhaps on internet panels where you've essentially you've got um, you know people volunteering to be on an internet panel. One star are ones where people just sort of fill in a, you know a, a one-off online questionnaire, and zero stars are ones that people just make up, of which there are many. <laughs> so when I leave you now. David, you're sitting here in your very lovely office and you're surrounded by um, books. One doesn't expect to see books, actually. <laughs> I thought it'd just be, uh, I don't know, just a load of laptops sitting around. But you've even got an old typewriter over here, which is lovely. Um, what will you be thinking about today? Oh, um, planning my next lectures for the undergraduates, which um, is quite a responsibility because they pack quite a lot in. And uh, also, I've got to comment on some new, recent news stories. I'm delivering a lecture to the editors of the British Medical Journal, um, stable of journals, in which I want to 
harangue them on the poor quality of some of the stuff in their journals and their press releases. <laughs> so it gives me a wonderful opportunity to be uh, abusive to, to them on uh, about the, the, the quality of their stats. I'm going to finish, if I may, by rather cheekily springing something on you, which I didn't tell you. Um, we're finishing all these interviews with what I'm calling the Cambridge Questionnaire, which is two or three questions about Cambridge, just to get a feeling for how you interact with the place. Mm. What would you say if I asked you, what's your favourite walk or bike ride? Oh, actually, I think it's probably um, the one I have to work. I, I, I cycle along the riverbank along Midsummer Common. So you've got Midsummer Common on one side, the cows aren't there at the moment, but they usually are, and then you've got the river, I, I like the narrowboats parked along there, and you've got the boathouses on the other side, and then up to um, Jesus Lock Bridge. So I, I think I really like that. And what would be your favourite place to go and eat tonight? Oh, at home. <laughs> <laughs> I like eating at home. Well, I don't know, I must say, since I joined the university... Some of the food in the colleges is very good, you know. I mean, it's remarkable. I thought it would all be, you know, old boiled carrots and uh, and roast beef, but um, it's it's extremely good. So that's rather spoiled me. Although I, I you know, I do like uh, Japanese restaurants in town as well. And last one, have you got a favourite shop? Poundland. Poundland. I, I, it's excellent. <laughs> uh, the Poundland in Burley Street is just um, just what I, I I buy my glasses there. You can get reading glasses for a quid, and I I break vast numbers of them, so I have to have hundreds of pairs littered all over the place. So, uh, no, Poundland's definitely my favourite shop. David Spiegelhalter, thank you so much for being our Cambridge mind uh, for this episode. We wish you every success, and uh, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much indeed. Cambridge Minds with Trevor Dan. Our next Cambridge mind occupied some of the most influential positions at the BBC. Roger Mosley was editor of the Today programme on Radio 4, controller of BBC Five Live, head of BBC Sport and TV News. Later he managed radio, TV, online, the lot at London 2012. And then he swapped the concrete and glass of New Broadcasting House for the elegant Gothic arches of Selwyn College, where he's now ensconced as master. I was ushered into the beautiful drawing room of the Master's Lodge on Grange Road. Roger, those of us who've read a little bit of Evelyn War or even Tom Sharp have an idea of what a master is. Um, he's probably a bit crumbly and eccentric and he has leather patches on his jacket. You don't seem to fit in like that. Uh, why did you want to become the master of a Cambridge college? Well, I think these are wonderful institutions. And these days, I think Cambridge Colleges and Oxford Colleges do take a slightly wider range of people as their heads of house. So I, 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 I saw this job advertised. I, it was in the Sunday Times, so it was nothing more um, uh, sort of thought through than that. Um, but I had this... I, had, I felt a really instant connection with Selwyn when I first came to it. And I, I, I never thought they'd elect me, but I went through the process. And as I went through the process, I liked it more and more. And I think it's because when you're in broadcasting, you're dealing with people in, in a slightly remote sense. I mean, you're reaching lots of people, but you often don't see them. Whereas here, you have every year a set of brilliant students you're surrounded by and live with. And that I find very exciting. And being in this kind of academic community is incredibly uplifting. You said elected. 
uh, not selected. So what, what, what's the procedure? Well, it, it is an election. So a fi- the final stage is the governing body of the college votes on the final candidates that it's seen. Uh, but I, I went through a first day in which you meet groups of fellows and they, they talk to you for an hour or so um, in different groups. So you essentially do the same kind of interview three or four times. And then when it comes to the second day, when they're down to the final shortlist, you're interviewed by the heads of departments, so the gardeners, the housekeepers. Uh, you're in, in, interviewed by the students, um, interviewed by the bursar, and then you go into a governing body with all 57 fellows. You have to chair the mock governing body. Uh, you have a couple of papers and you have to sort of referee it. And then you're interviewed for a solid hour by all 57 fellows. And then they take you in for dinner, which, of course, the, the, the pretense is that dinner's just a relaxation at the end of it. But you do sense you're still being auditioned through dinner. You must have been through some gruelling BBC interview processes to be head of news and head of sport and to run Five Live and all the other great things that you did at the corporation. This sounds far worse than anything they ever inflicted on you. Well, it depends, you see, worse or better, because when I was writing my book, I was thinking about how I got certain jobs in the BBC. And, you know, in certain jobs in the BBC, you are, you know, the suggestion is made, you might like to apply for it, and the, uh, there's a little bit of smoothing of the process for the favoured candidates. When I was looking back, I think that has happened both in my favour and, and against me. Whereas here, whatever you think about the process, and I rather enjoyed it, it was an incredibly rigorous and um, full process in which there was no hiding. I mean, you were scrutinised uh, at enormous length. It's a process which is very fair and open. So how much of your job is admin and how much is literally academic? Well, I, I'm not an academic, so there are three main areas, I'd say. One is that you help the place work. So you're first among equals. But you're not a chief executive. It's more like a chairman. But you pick up any issues and concerns. You chair appropriate committees like the Finance Committee or the, the Investment Committee, the, the Buildings and Estates Committee, that kind of thing. The second thing is you do represent the college and the university. So you attend the college's committee and you represent it as a head of house at, at ceremonies and you, you lead degree ceremonies. And then the third element is, is, is raising money because we're a charity. All the colleges do need to raise money to ensure their long-term future. So you are thinking pretty much all the time about how you reach out to a wider community and get the support for Cambridge colleges they need to thrive. And what do you think they thought you brought to this job, given that as an ex-public service broadcaster, of course you had some experience of chairing committees, but fundraising wasn't something that you would have done? No, I I mean, one of my friends who's a Cambridge visiting fellow said to me all the way through that if they're going to elect you, they're going to elect you because you represent a connection with the outside world, not because, you know, you're Cambridge, which I'm, I'm not, or an academic, which I'm not. And, and I think what, what, what the college has enjoyed is, is, you know, I do get quite a lot of guests up from uh, London, from politics and the media and the wider world. And, and also, you know, we recognise that communication is one of the things colleges need to do. So uh, we're much more active now on, on social media. Uh, we've revamped the website. And, and all of those are important, not in a kind of media lovey I love social media kind of way, but because that's the way that prospective students or prospective candidates for jobs communicate these days, and we have to speak in a modern voice. Do you think that Cambridge, the university, 
in any way deserves its reputation for being elitist? No, but I think there's a constant challenge to make sure that you reach out to people who are the brightest and best wherever they come from. And I think if you look at, I mean, at Selwyn, we're, we've got quite a good record, I think, on state schools against independent schools. So our intake this year was 70% state schools, 30% independent schools. However, we do also recognise there is a bit of a north-south divide, if you're not careful. So people tend to apply from, um, you know, Kent and Buckinghamshire and, um, you know, the general southeast of England. And it's tougher to get candidates from the nations, from Scotland and Wales, or from north of England. Um, so I think there's a constant battle to make Cambridge appear accessible to everybody, because it truly is. Um, we want the brightest people wherever they come from. But you can't assume that automatically happens because it, it clearly doesn't. And is getting foreign students a big issue for you? I mean, all the universities seem to me to be uh, falling over, over themselves to try and get people to come from Malaysia or China because that's where the money is. Well, it's, it's two answers here. One is that one of the joys of the job is that we have students from all over the world, especially graduate students. Uh, and I think out of that 120 people who came in this year, uh, we had, I think, 11 who were foreign students. But I, I think we have to balance the fact that an international educational establishment is a good thing with the fact that we were set on earth as a British educational institution and it would be wrong if we filled all 120 places with foreign students. So there's a balance in this as in all things um, and I think we have that balance more or less right at the moment and certainly we, we wouldn't see it as, you know, if, if it were more profitable to bring in lots of foreign students we wouldn't do that against the aim of showing that Cambridge is an academic institution for all, for all people in Britain. Now you've produced and executive produced a number of radio shows and television shows over your career at the BBC, Roger. And if you were looking after this programme, you'd be saying to me, this acoustic's a bit echoey. Can you tell me where we are and, and describe this uh, almost perfect lifestyle that you have? Well, th this is one of the public rooms. So we're in the drawing room of the Master's Lodge at Selwyn. And the drawing room is a place where we do things like drinks after chapel on a Sunday night. So uh, there'll be 70 people in here this coming Sunday at 7 o'clock. And it's where we have student events and poetry recitals and so on. So this is not where I live. There's a, there's a flat upstairs, which is where I live. And, um, you know, it's, it's a wonderful environment. We're looking out now on uh, the garden, which is, um, I'm so in being, you know, a few minutes walk out of the centre means we have wonderful gardens They've really, I think, been um, improved hugely over the years from everything I hear. And it's, it's idyllic. And, you know, the key thing, and I, 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 you know, I think one of the things, for instance, about the Master's Lodge is that I really wanted people to use this and benefit from it. And that's why we get students in here a lot. And, you know, everybody, I hope, shares the environment we all exist in. So when you arrived here, as, as you hinted earlier, you're an Oxford man, aren't you? That's, a, that's never no, a good thing in I, these I, I get booed at sports dinners <laughs> when I say that. Um, were people friendly with you? I want to get a feeling about what you talk about, you guys. You know, you meet together at your formal dinners and so on. I mean, I know what BBC meetings are like. You know, it's usually... What do you think of the current political situation? And then, don't you hate that guy? And, oh, that woman who's just been appointed. I don't, I'm not getting on with her. It's a lot of backbiting, I think, in big corporations. What's the atmosphere 
like conversationally in the university? Well, I, 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 I'll talk about Selwyn first. I, I think that Selwyn is remarkably normal. And um, if you talk to students about why they choose Selwyn over other colleges, they say because he's got people like me here. It's sort of normal. And I, 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 I think you could probably argue, Trevor, that people might have been indulging me a bit during the mastership election, but certainly at dinner on, on the election days or the, the interview days, um, they were talking about whether the Hungarians should have won Britain's Got Talent and <laughs> should Joanna Lumley be the new Doctor Who. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a normal conversation. Again, alongside which, though, there are wonderful conversations about people's academic work and what they're doing. And, and of course, the thing that for me as, as someone who's been in the media is that people in academia actually do communicate very well because they teach, because they're used to explaining what they do to 18-year-old students. And therefore, actually, as a non-scientist, I found that scientists are really good at explaining some amazing work they're doing. And what you get sometimes at lunch or at high table is a conversation in which the um, you know professor who has been devising and working on LEDs and a new generation of LEDs will be sitting next to uh, the woman who is a specialist in Dante, and they can have a really interesting conversation, and, and you know they share common experiences and aspects of their work, and those are wonderfully stimulating conversations, and not at a sort of absurdly esoteric high level. You say stimulating. I guess also sometimes you must find yourself, even though you're a great mind yourself, sitting there thinking, "Crikey, these people are clever." Yeah, no, no. I, I mean, you you are surrounded by you know utterly brilliant people. And, and I feel quite, quite humble about that because, you know, as a non-academic, I, I so massively admire the dedication to what they do and, and what Cambridge does. You know, you come back to the question of, um, you know, why is Cambridge so successful? Well, because it has brilliant people doing amazing work here. And, um, you know, I, th I think there are times when, you know, we create in any profession or any sector of British life, you create barriers sometimes. And I, I sometimes look at the language on a poster for a particular event and think it could be made more accessible if you want people to come to it. But the, the intellectual heft of the place has to remain as it is. We're talking with uh, Roger Mosey. He's the master of Selwyn College, and we'll be back doing more of that after this. Cambridge Minds with Trevor Dan. So, Roger Mosey, in your distinguished BBC career, you did a lot of things, a lot of quite varied things. You know, running a radio station like Five Live is not the same as running the Olympics and uh, editing the Today programme. Quite, quite a varied portfolio of things. Looking back now, what was the most fun time that you had? I think it would have to be the Olympics. But I, I think I, I have been very lucky because the jobs I did editing the Today programme and Control of Five Live and uh, being director of BBC Sport are all jobs which are, you know, wonderfully stimulating and interesting. And I think r writing about it, what the people who've read early drafts of my book think comes out is how much I loved radio. And I think when you look back, I, I did utterly love radio. And probably the job that I, in retrospect, found a bit cheerless was being head of television news. Because I think television news is a bed of nails. You're always uh, being accused of something. And, you know, it's a very tough environment managing breakfast, one, six, ten, news channel, world news, the whole lot. Uh, and, and, and that, I think, although, um, you, you know, it, it has its 
status and it has its challenges and it's intellectually tough. Um, but the pleasure in that was probably less than it was in some of the other jobs. Do you feel that the BBC is an impartial place? You know, you read the Daily Mail and you'd think that it was completely overrun by pinkos and communists. I spent quite a lot of my time at the BBC and I, I would say that it was fairly establishment and if, if any way, leaning slightly rightwards. How would you place it? I don't think it makes a lot of sense to talk about political bias in the BBC. I think uh, I wrote a piece in the Times about um, 18 months ago where what I was really arguing was that the risk is about homogeneity. And, and the risk of homogeneity, and especially as you get a more centralised news-gathering operation and you know synergies between programmes, which means that they share editors or share content, that you can get a bit of a, a groupthink if you're not careful. And I think that can be to the left and to the right. And you know there was a, a, a report by the BBC Trust, of whom, of course, I'm not the greatest fan, but the Trust did a report... Don't worry, it won't be here long. ...which, which actually identified um, arguments on both the left and the right that you tend not to hear. So, for instance, an argument on the left you tend not to hear is, I think, in a poll I saw, something like 68% of people in the country think the railways should be renationalised. And yet, you know, I can't think I've heard a lot of debates and discussions on Today or Newsnight about, you know, should rail be renationalised. Equally, um, I think that you can get arguments. I think it's, it's true that the immigration debate in the 2000s, you know, the BBC was not as full in its debating as it should have been, and that voices arguing for immigration to be curbed were seen at one point as being, quote, extreme, and therefore not allowed within some of the consensus on air. Is there an issue that the way impartiality is defined in BBC News is through adversarial argument? In other words, that any issue and this, I suppose, is a criticism of the Today programme on Radio 4 as much as anything, but maybe even Newsnight. But many issues seem to be boiled down to this guy says good, this guy says bad, and that there is no shade of opinion allowed. That may be true. I mean, I, I would plead guilty as editor today to doing those kind of discussions. And sometimes if you have a, um, you know, X says one thing and Y says the opposite, that it can tease out what you yourself think of something. Um, I think, I think that, you know, I'm still impressed hugely by the quality and range of what all the broadcasters do. I, I think I have a sort of wider issue, which is, for me, public service broadcasting shouldn't be the BBC alone. I, th I think public service media can't be only the BBC. And I think the challenge is to get the widest possible range of voices into public service media. And that's why, you know, having community radio, uh, having, you know, I wish Channel 4 had done Channel 4 radio, which would have been, um, you know, a, a challenge to Radio 4 and to Radio 5 Live. And, and, and I think that the BBC cannot itself be the only voice you get in public service media. I sense that the BBC is not as much liked as it was perhaps when you and I were growing up. And I wonder if it's losing the battle for its own survival because people don't warm to it as much as they used to. And, and you know, you were there, not at perhaps the worst moment, but, you know, in recent years there have been one or two scandals and one or two issues that have emerged that have not really endeared the BBC, I think, to its public. What do you think? 
Well, I, I had um, this curious experience in 2008 that, you know, the BBC's approval ratings after Beijing were at record highs. And then eight weeks later, we had Ross Brand and they collapsed. And then in 2012, you know, even higher for the Olympics and even lower for Savile, which was, you know, rev the revelation of a, you know, truly evil man who'd been, you know, one of the faces of the BBC. So, I mean, you're used to this reputational uh, switch and... I'm a bit allergic to the idea of a, a golden age in which everyone loved everything. But I, I, I do think that the BBC sometimes can feel... When you're inside it, you feel small and vulnerable. You think, you, think, you know, everybody's out to get us and we're just a kind of group of public service people trying to do the right thing. When you're outside the BBC, you see it as being really quite big and, you know, monolithic and sometimes a bit fortress-like. And you can see that if you're a local newspaper, of course you worry a bit about the BBC website, which is moving into your territory. And I thought it was interesting, the chairman of the Trust, Rona Fairhead, said that she'd picked up this sense that partnerships are things that the BBC does to people rather than being genuine partnerships. And I think the BBC does need to be more porous, a bit more open to different ideas and a bit more fostering of other people doing things in the public service area. I think some people w would be surprised to hear what you just said about being inside the BBC and feeling vulnerable because I think we could probably all name people who use their BBC positions to feel that actually they've got quite a lot of power and they, they can wield that influence. You know, you hear BBC spokespeople saying... They feel they know what the youth of today want and they're going to play these kind of records. And they feel mm. they... You've only got to listen to an edition of Feedback on Radio 4 to feel that, that those BBC people don't exhibit a lot of vulnerability. No, I suppose what I mean is that you start every day, if you're a BBC executive member of the management board, with the cuttings of what people are saying about you in the papers. And Greg Dyke said correctly that we ought to throw them away, that, that you, know, you start the day with this terrible low of all the bad things people are saying about you, and you do spend a lot of your time defending incoming um, you know, newspaper challenges or FOIs or whatever. So I think that's the sense in which you feel you're under attack all the time. And I saw one BBC executive recently said, you know, the BBC's always under attack. Now, if you sit here and I read the papers like normal people do now and I listen to the media, I don't get the sense that the BBC's under attack all the time. I think it has its critics and you may be right, there's a bit of a lack of love in some areas. But for the most part, you know, the BBC sails ahead with Wolf Hall and The Voice and its music radio networks and it doesn't feel like a tiny vulnerable organisation which some people try to portray it as. Do you think the BBC will survive in its present form for let's say another 10 years? Yes, I think it's vital that the BBC survives. I think there will be challenges to the licence fee in the sense of it being a TV licence fee. And you see now people watching TV, our students watch TV on their iPads and their uh, laptops, and, and that will continue. So therefore, I think it's right that the recent report by MPs identified that you will need alternatives to the licence fee. Um, and I, I would hope that public money will subsidise to some degree that wider range of voices that represents a more diverse Britain. And, and I think for the BBC to say we have to be 100% of public service would be wrong, but the BBC should be there as the biggest beast in the public service media jungle. So, Roger, here you are now, um, master of uh, all you survey, quite literally, uh, here at Selwyn College. Um, I think when you're in those big... 
BBC roles, your agenda is often set for you, isn't it? You get in there and your secretary's worked out a load of meetings you've got to go to. There's a lot of reports, there's a lot of emails. You're often on the back foot. I wonder to what extent you can now feel as though you're on the front foot, that you can say, I'm going to think about this today, or I'm going to do that today. And do you feel a bit more kind of open and, and perhaps less regimented than you used to? Yes, I mean, first of all, um, constitutionally, it's the Master and Fellows of Selwyn College, Cambridge, and I work with the Fellows to deliver what we as a college want to do. I, I suppose the truth is that anybody in any kind of job will always find a lot of things to do. And certainly in my first term here, I went to the university library, and the university library has got every book ever published there. And I was determined to spend two or three days just wallowing in the glories of the university library and I still haven't been back you know and 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 so so you have everyone has busy lives and I think though what I would hope to do is I think you have got time to think about the long term here and you you think really the Olympics was long term so I started working on the Olympics in 2009 and they were delivered in 2012 I mean here of course if you're now thinking about how do we make our website more attractive for students who might want to come to Selwyn those are students who might apply later in 2015 or in 2016 and arrive here a year afterwards and graduate three years after that and you are working on a very long term but I think that's part of what's exciting here, which is that you have a college which started in 1882 and making sure it's got absolute financial stability and viability and the best students and um, the most attractive environment remains an incredibly exciting job to do. And, you know, I relish every day that I'm doing it. I left the Olympics out earlier because I wanted to finish with this. It's it's your great moment, I think, isn't it? I think the the... BBC and 2012, it's just one of those iconic moments of broadcasting where the BBC, which is so often a fractious organisation, just completely pulled it out of the bag. And that's a great credit to you, isn't it? Well, I, I think it's a great credit to the BBC. I, I mean, I mean, the, the curious thing, I, I, I went to Japan last year to work with NHK, who got the Olympics in 2020, and they were looking at what the BBC had done. And... If you remember, in 2003, the BBC came up with its values, which I led. And one of the values was, we are one BBC, great things happen when we work together. And NHK thought that, you know, there it goes as a sort of line through to 2012, and we delivered what we said we were going to do. Of course, if you're in the BBC, you know, there are so many twists and turns and so many political manoeuvres along the way. But that was that higher aspiration of the BBC, that if everybody works together, you can do amazing things, and in 2012 we did. And did you work with Danny Boyle on the opening? Yeah, well, we, we, we made the film, so the BBC drama made the film with the Queen and James Bond. Uh, we made the opening film, Isles of Wonder, as well. And, you know, we saw the opening ceremony a year out in its draft form, so we worked with them on that. But, of course, the, the other thing you could do in the BBC was the Torch Relay was another example where um, it was a decision by us and by the organisers three years out that we would invest in that. Uh, it works brilliantly for local radio, for regional television. Simple things like the torch arriving in a particular patch at 6.35pm, so it goes live into Look East or Midlands Today. And and all of that was, was a, a wonderful time where you could make partnerships really work and people feel that they were 
part of a, a great national enterprise. So what's not to like about that? Well, well done. Congratulations on all that. It's Cambridge questionnaire time. Roger, uh, here we go. What is your favourite building? I'm, I'm, I, I know you're going to say Selwyn College. Well, you might not. Uh, what's your favourite building in Cambridge? Selwyn College. Oh, my word. And why? It's not one of the most beautiful, is it? I think it is. I think it's, it's, a, it's a lovely piece of um, harmonious late Victorian architecture. So I think Selwyn, the combination of the buildings and the gardens, are actually one of Cambridge's undiscovered joys. And do you have a favourite walk? Yeah, well, since I've been here, I've acquired the dog who is sleeping peacefully at our feet at the moment. And Name of dog? Uh, she's called Yo-Yo. Um, she comes from a, a Bassett pack, so she was called Yo-Yo before she came here, and the students like the name Yo-Yo. Um, but we, the, the, the standard what we do is uh, around Kofen and Lammas Land and alongside the Cam. So that's our, that's our regular walk, and then we sometimes vary it. Very good. And do you have a favourite restaurant or a favourite place to eat? This is going into controversial territory. I don't think Cambridge has utterly amazing restaurants. Steady on. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think they're all kind of serviceable, but I don't, I don't think there's a, there's a single restaurant in Cambridge that totally excites me. So I think I'll default to Selwyn Hall, where we have a very good executive chef who is also crucially an Arsenal fan. <laughs> is this my headline story? Master of Selwyn trashes restaurants <laughs> no, of Cambridge. No, 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 no. I think I think they're all. I think it's just a, the, the, it's probably the chains that are the most dependable in in, in Cambridge. So uh, you know, I tend to go to Lock Fine or Cow or those kind of places. Okay, and a favourite shop? I'd have to say John Lewis, I suppose, because when I moved here, of course, as you say, this lodge is pretty big. So my Richmond possessions moved into the lodge did need a bit of expansion. So uh, I found myself going most days to John Lewis. And I, I, I was expecting at one point a banner outside saying, welcome Roger Mosey for the most loyal customer of John Lewis, as I was buying up things to store in the lodge. So uh, no, it would be John Lewis. Thank you very much indeed. Roger Mosey, Master of Selwyn for being our Cambridge mind. How do you feel it went as an experienced editor? Oh, really well. I think you asked great questions. Um, it went into all sorts of territory that you're never quite sure where it's going, which is good, makes, makes me think. So, yeah, I was very happy. <laughs> Roger Mosey, Master of Selwyn College, and David Spiegelhalter, Professor of the Public Understanding of Risk, were our first two guests on Cambridge Minds. The series is a TDC production for Cambridge 105, and we'll have two more Cambridge Minds for you to meet next month. I'm Trevor Dan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>